Cleantechnica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Hello and welcome back to Clean Tech Talks. I'm Michael Bernard, your host for today. My guest is Paul Martin, Senior Technical Fellow with Zeton and an experienced chemical engineer who's worked with hydrogen, biofuels, and synthetic fuels for 30 years as he built component-based chemical processing plants. He's also the founding member of the newly minted Hydrogen Science Coalition, which aims to bring an evidence-based viewpoint into the political discussion on hydrogen in the EU and UK. Now, sharp-eared listeners might remember that Paul and I spoke at length last year dissecting the good the bad, and the ugly uses of hydrogen, leveraging Michael Liebrich's useful hydrogen ladder to do so. Paul, welcome back. Thanks a lot, Michael. Looking forward to the conversation. So let's start with the H2 Science Coalition. There's some stuff there. You're one of five founding members, but the EU and EUK structuring seemed odd to me, given A, you're Canadian, and B, we have our own problems here in North America. So Talk to me about the mandate, how it founded, other members, you know, you know, give me the the skinny on the the H2 Science Coalition. So basically, I think the group more or less uh, coalesced around conversations back and forth on LinkedIn. Uh, There were a number of people uh, in the group who... um, we're having conversations and we were violently agreeing about things, uh, it, it, particularly in relation to hydrogen. And a, a, another group reached out to us and said, we exist for the purpose of helping governments make good pub- public policy. Let's just put it that way. And to help governments get access to the right advice through, for instance, providing access to experts for media interviews, where a lot, you know, politicians are like uh, like everyone else, they they listen to what they uh, they hear on the radio and what they read in in print and and uh, on the internet and uh, wherever they uh, wherever they see it, and that in- informs kind of their baseline position. It, it reinforces their maybe their confirmation bias, and so getting more clarity about hydrogen, we all felt was very important because there just seems to be such a push from interesting parties, people that would stand to profit from the use of hydrogen in both appropriate and inappropriate uses out there in the media right now. And, and uh, they're, they're slanting the public discourse and they're making it very difficult for politicians to know what the right thing to do is. And so the group coalesced around those initial conversations and, and the desire to uh, uh, among the founders to get out there to answer questions and provide input and comment. And as to why it's in the UK and and Europe, (laughs) you'll probably refer, uh, sorry, recall uh, that I've been referring to this whole hydrogen hyperbole epidemic as being a, basically, it's basically a drug epidemic of hopium, uh, where where people's hope is being used to throttle their their, uh, executive faculties and and, uh, allow them, uh, allow people to, who have interests in a particular technology or, or a path forward in the economy to separate them and particularly governments from their money. And this hopium epidemic has an epicenter 
as mo most epidemics do. They, they start somewhere and they spread out. And it seems like Europe and the UK is the epidemic epicenter of the, the hopium epidemic. So we, we thought, why not there? I, we, we certainly will branch out over time to include North America and, um, and other places in the world, uh, at least we hope. But right now, our focus actually is on finding more members with specific interests and experience in relation to specific topics so for instance one of our uh, one of our members bernard van dyke is uh, an aviation expert and he's a retired professor so in order to be a member you have to kind of fall into a couple categories one you can't have any vested interests one way or another and that eliminates a lot of people from consideration because they're profiting either from the thing that we're talking about or from the thing that might replace it or something that might replace it. And so such people uh, who are free of those entanglements are comparatively rare. And uh, the other thing is you have to know quite a, quite a bit about a specific area. And my specific area happens to be hydrogen production and the alternatives to hydrogen production and fuels production and the alternative to fuels production and that's that's the the piece that i bring to the uh, uh that i bring to the table and i can do that from canada and uh thermodynamics are the same uh, the units might be actually in fact the units are the same between canada and europe and the uk so we're all right uh of course we're we're multilingual in uh, in units here in canada we know how to speak <laughs> to the americans yeah unlike the people down in the states who are you know monolingual and yeah, I, I still think it's it's fascinatingly ironic that the United States clings to the imperial system. They have it even stranger. They have they have their own version of the imperial system. Uh, the do. imperial gallon weighs uh, an imperial gallon of water weighs ten pounds. So it kind of makes a modicum of sense, you know. There, there's some sense in it. Now, any unit system where force doesn't equal mass times acceleration without a fudge factor is kind of a problem for me. So I, I, I well, like. We can SI. digress. We can digress and pick on our American neighbors all we want. We're not going to do that. We're going to stick to hydrogen. So tell me about the. You, know, you mentioned Bernard, um, who I've interacted with a bunch of times, um, yep. but there's five of you right now. So why don't you just kind of step through? Like David's. What's David's background? Uh, so David Saban is a is a UK professor, and and he has interests particularly in road transport. That's uh, his area of expertise. So he's, for instance, looked in, in a great deal of detail at things like electric roads. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, as an academic, as a professor, he he really doesn't, you know, he's not tied up as a founder of a startup or an investor in in some corporate enterprise that that colors his his opinion. Uh, in relation to these matters, he just wants to do what the rest of us are earnestly interested in doing, which is decarbonizing uh, the future by the best means possible. And uh, so, so that's uh, that's David, and David is very articulate and a very well informed uh, person on a wide variety of topics. Is he uh, has a background in engineering and and is quite versatile, so he's a great member. And then there's Tom Baxter. Tom is a uh, long term participant in the fossil fuel industry. And he uh, is now a, a guest lecturer, guest professor at uh, University of Aberdeen, if I remember correctly. But his background, he has this incredible vast knowledge of what is done, has been done, and so on in the, in the fossil fuel industry as a participant through 
management positions and, and uh, positions in, in uh, doing work in chemical engineering related to the fossil fuel industry, particularly offshore. And so his area of expertise is largely around the safety and issues associated with the, the distribution of hydrogen, use of hydrogen as a replacement for natural gas, which uh, Tom and the rest of the members of the coalition share our opinion that hydrogen as a substitute for natural gas is a fundamentally suspect concept, as is blending hydrogen into natural gas for that purpose. Bernard, I've already mentioned, is a, is a retired professor uh, from the Netherlands who very recently retired, who's an expert in, in aviation. And then our last member. Uh, I, I'm really glad that it, um, he seems to not be having allergic reactions to the things I've been publishing on aviation. So <laughs> No, Ber uh, he, Bernard, uh, uh, Bernard knows what's going on and he knows what's feasible and, and what isn't. And what's, what's fascinating uh, with Bernard is that he really hadn't given hydrogen much thought uh, until he started reading things that I'd written about it, for instance, and looked at it and went, of course, yeah, that's, that's nonsense. Why, why would anyone even try to do that? It, 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 the energy density is just far too low. It hadn't occurred to him that <laughs> people would even think of using hydrogen until the Airbus stuff started coming up, for instance. Yeah. And then our last, our last member who, unfortunately, his name, I, I never remember how to pronounce correctly, so I won't even try, but it's easy enough to find him. He's a member, uh, sorry. I'm, I'm uh, going to go with Jochen or Jochen. Right. And, and it might be, Yo, I believe it's actually pronounced Johan. But oh. anyway, he. Uh, Those guys, those Germans. He, he works for Fraunhofer. And Fraunhofer is a little bit complicated in, uh, uh, they're an institute. And they're a little bit complicated because they are Fraunhofer, various people at that are involved with Fraunhofer are tied up in this hydrogen hyperbole epidemic. For instance, Fraunhofer was the uh, famous generator of the gray goo, the hydrogen gray goo, the hydrogen, magic hydrogen paste, power Ooh. paste that was being pitched for a while, uh, which I ridiculed uh, <laughs> loudly and publicly. But uh, Fraunhofer is a very big place and, and it, it allows a wide variety of voices to be expressed. And Johan's uh, background is actually, in fact, I think he's in, he's in South America at the moment on uh, something related to energy, uh, uh, to energy transition, energy business. He has a broad, uh, a broad background, but I, I think he's more of an energy uh, markets and understanding kind of the, the energy economics side of things. So that's our group so far. And that's pretty good. I mean, you've got all ground transportation, you've got air transportation, you've got energy markets, you've got the production and production distribution, and distribution you've got thermodynamics and chemistry. What you're missing is shipping. Uh, shipping. Shipping is a big one. We're missing some, and we're actively looking for someone in shipping. But and, go ahead. Uh, I'm sure we're missing lots. Yeah, possibly storage as well. Considering, I'm just thinking about the end use cases that are getting so much attention. Um, yep. Possibly geological storage, but possibly appliances or you know utility distribution and use. Like right. Because that's you know there's a lot of you know I, I'm tempted to be much less polite uh, in my and use Anglo-Saxon fric fricatives and things like that when I talk about some of the nonsense that gets spouted about hydrogen. You know, but you've got transportation, you've got two or three covered, you've got energy distribution and you know, transmission side covered, 
creation and manufacturing. But yeah, there's a there's some of the end use cases could use somebody from some of the lo more local distribution cases could use some stuff. You know, Tom Tom has um, some experience with the the distribution industry, but the the trouble, of course, with uh, people in the distribute on the distribution side is that they it tends to be quite local. So you, mm -hmm. you end up needing a lot of advice from a lot of people and, and it might be better for us, for instance, to seek that advice uh, on, the, on the more regional level uh, as issues that are regional come up. But certainly we, we are broadening the tent. But again, everyone that, that joins has to be in that enviable position of being able to offer an opinion, which is not impeachable on the basis of economic interest. Yeah, and, certainly. Yeah, certainly people try that with me. But because, you know, I, I consult in the space, I work with startups. And so they say, oh, I'm a vested interest. Uh, no, that's not quite the way it works. I publish, I, I'm engaged in those places because I've been an independent voice who doesn't take money from the fossil fuel industry or, you know, fuel cell companies or anything like that. Oh, and Michael, so I'm, I'm in exactly the same situation, except I do take money from the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> it's just not money that informs my opinion on any subject. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get into opinion, that because I think your, you know, business partners are not ecstatic about some of your opinions being so vocal. <laughs> we don't they're they're quite vocal with me and, and would like me to shut up about it, honestly. <laughs> and they, they try. This is, I find this kind of amusing, actually, because as, I, as Michael mentioned, I, uh, three days a week these days, I, I work for a company that I joined about 25 years ago called Zeton that designs and builds pilot plants for the chemical process industry and is the unrivaled best in the world at doing that. And that business is employed is owned by the employees and I'm an employee. So I own part of that business. But the great thing about Zeton is that Zeton doesn't actually take an ownership position in anybody or anything other than itself. So we don't license technology and then make money from its ongoing application. We don't patent things and then hope to recover money from people wanting to licensing, license the use of patents from us. Uh, we, we've carved out that position of independence so that we can serve, for instance, two different groups of people or three or four different groups of people that are pursuing either the same or different solutions to particular problems at the same time and do so without any indication that we're going to favor one over the other by giving them more resources or, or uh, feeling that our bread would be better be better buttered if we served one group than the other. So that independence is very valuable to Zeton. And what, what I find quite comical is that on occasion, uh, either clients or, or putative clients, uh, important companies in the world that may have been clients of ours in the past, will contact Zeton and say, hey, this Paul Martin guy is really causing a lot of, uh, a lot of discomfort for us and we'd like him to shut up. So can you shut him up? And the, the business kind of shrugs its shoulders and says, well, what do you want? I mean, he's a... He's, he's an employee, you, you know, he's a, he's a part owner of the company. He has a right to say what he wants to say, and we can't really do anything about it. So, I mean, I think they quite like the fact that they can't do anything about it because they don't want to shut me up. But at the same time, I'm sure it causes some discomfort when a client calls up and says, hey, we really think hydrogen is the best thing since sliced bread. It's our future. And we don't like it when people say that it isn't. So you should shut yeah. your guy up. And so... 
I think we need to move back to the H2 Science Coalition a bit. Um, so when, when was it formed? I mean, it was just- uh, We launched in November. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's only a couple of months old. It's brand new it's, and we're still learning. Because yeah. none of us have ever been in anything like this before. Yep, it's it's a, it's a independent advocacy and public relations group for sanity, which is interesting because most of the th- you know the as you know, as you and I know and many of the listeners know, there's a vested interest putting a lot of money into PR that is contrary to elementary physics and economics, but not contrary to the, their bottom line. No, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I'll look at, um, I'll, I'll, I'll pick on Scottish natural gas or whatever the heck they're SNG or SGN, whoever they are up in mm-hmm. Fife, they're planning a hydrogen community proof of concept, right? And they're going to distribute pure hydrogen through pipes to homes and businesses in theory for anybody who wishes to sign up and they're going to pay for the hydrogen for the first while. And they're going to pay for appliances that actually run on hydrogen, like stoves and furnaces. And they're spending a lot of money to try and perpetuate their business model. But as I, I, I did the math on this, and you know, it's about a hundred thousand, it's over a hundred thousand dollars more, mostly in hydrogen fuel costs over the 15-year lifespan of a, of a gas furnace and stove, than it would be for a heat pump and an induction oven, induction stove. You know, and so you kind of look at this and go, this is the best case scenario numbers. Who's going to sign up for this as a customer? And why? The, the thinking is not clear. And the motivations are very clear. But the thinking is not very clear. So if you are a natural gas distributor, hydrogen is existential to your future. And, and the reason is that in a, dec- a truly decarbonized future, one that makes sense to me and probably to you, Michael, there is no role for natural gas. If there's a role for natural gas, it might be we might be burning it for two weeks a year during the cold. Don't go in flood. some regions. Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe you know, but the, uh, we'll use it a, as a reagent sometimes, or some parts of it as a reagent sometimes to make things. But as a fuel, it's done. And so, if you're a Shell, as an example, not to pick on Shell, but let's pick on Shell. Why not? They're big boys. Uh, you have a lot of natural gas assets in the ground and you need your investors to think that those assets are assets, not liabilities. <laughs> so you want them to think that they have a future, that you're going to be able to develop them. And people are going to be able to take those assets and use them for something. And since you can't burn natural gas anymore as a fuel, your only option really is to make it into hydrogen, bury the CO2, and then sell the hydrogen as some magical clean fuel. Now, it would be great if that all worked. And it kind of, it can, but doesn't uh, in reality. You end up with uh, what uh, what these people are, are calling blue hydrogen is hydrogen made from natural gas with carbon capture and storage. But in reality, the very best you can do is to make kind of a blackish blue bruise colored hydrogen at great cost. But of course, you don't need to get into the details about how expensive that would be and what it would take to do and so on. If your goal is merely to extend the existing situation for as long as possible so that perhaps you can sell your shares and get out before people realize that the assets are actually liabilities. Yeah. (laughs) That's the trouble here. And I'll tell you, I would never have natural gas, sorry, I would never have hydrogen in my home, for instance, to burn in an open burning appliance like a stove 
or or mm -hmm. uh, or an oven, a range, or the like, a cooktop, because when you burn hydrogen in air, it's the same as when you burn anything in air. If the air temperature gets high enough that the nitrogen atoms, the nitrogen molecules get excited, they start reacting with the oxygen molecules and they make compounds of nitrogen and oxygen called NOx. And NOx consists of three species. Two of them are really toxic, NO and NO2. And those two are uh, particularly bad for your health and they, they actually contribute to juvenile asthma when natural gas is used in homes. There's quite a bit of NOx made. And the third one, N2O, is arguably worse than the other two because although it's not toxic, nitrous oxide is 300 times the global warming potential of CO2 and it's quite durable. It, it sticks around for at least 100 years. So it's a nasty molecule and one that we really can't be making any more of in the future. Uh, and to be so clear- I'm, gas I'm... in your home, but let's just actually make this clear for everybody who's listening. If you burn any gas in any form in the atmosphere, you're making NOx. Correct. And so that, and that's high global warming potential. It causes smog, causes air pollution. You know, as we fast forward 80 years to fully electric, well, most things, then we're going to actually have much cleaner air and a lot less production of all those NOxs. Exactly. And especially in your home. I mean, I, I didn't realize this myself, even being a chemical engineer. I thought, well, natural gas is clean. You know, you natural burn gas. It, it's natural. You know, it's natural. Exactly. <laughs> and when you burn it, it's clean. There's no soot. You know, there's no particulate matter generated. It's good. And yeah, it's a clean fuel relative to coal or, or perhaps even well, to some petroleum. You kind of have to go back to the transitionary periods. When natural gas came in, it was replacing paraffin lamps, whale oil lamps, coal burning hobs and braziers inside homes and wood fireplaces inside homes, all of which are much, much less clean burning. But when you have the option for, gee, an electric heat pump, an induction stove top and a, you know, electric appliances, which have none of that stuff. And, you know, in the case of natural gas, carbon monoxide, hence the requirement for carbon monoxide detectors, you know, you kind of say that and go, I always say to people, if, if we were fully electrified and somebody came and said, Hey, I found this carbon rich rock or this, you know, carbon, this, this hydrogen rich gas underground, let's dig it up and burn it inside our homes and to generate electricity. <laughs> and you kind of, explore, yes. well, what happens? Well, when you burn it, you get lots of CO2, so it'll create global warming, and it also creates carbon monoxide, so which is a lethal gas to humans in sufficient concentrations, and also it creates all these nitrous oxides, which creates... Please don't let the door hit you on the way out. <laughs> there are a lot of things that if you posed uh, the proposition as, as if you were a startup today, of things that we do now in giant quantity, you know, thousands, millions of tons a year, just would not fly at all. and you bring up a, a, an interesting thing. It's an, an aside, but I think that it's a useful aside. One of the arguments that you'll hear from hydrogen proponents who are trying to pitch uh, for the, the reasons that were previously discussed, the use of hydrogen to replace natural gas or to blend hydrogen with natural gas. One of the things that they'll bring up is something that's quite true, but quite dangerous if, if viewed the wrong way. And that is, you, you mentioned 
back in the in the old days when we were trying to replace, uh, say, candles and kerosene lamps with something that was a utility that you bring into people's homes. The thing that was brought into people's homes initially was largely coal gas. It was gas that was produced by gasification of, of coal and then sometimes by reaction of coal with steam to make a synthesis gas. And this gas mixture was referred to as town gas. And that mixture contained some methane, but it contained a lot of hydrogen and a lot of carbon monoxide, lots of carbon monoxide. So in the old days, when town gas was being distributed to homes, people that wanted to commit suicide would put their head in the oven because they would asphyxiate on the carbon monoxide. They would poison themselves. I hadn't realized that that was the substance that was enabling people to kill themselves. That, that's right. And sticking your head in the oven today is not really going to do too much. I mean, you can asphyxiate, but boy, it would, it would take a long time. The carbon monoxide, in, in contrast, quite silently you know, puts you to sleep and it's all over with. It, the, the lethal concentration is quite low. But the thing is, it's called town gas for a reason, because the gas was made in each town. And I know this from my past involvement with environmental remediation, because every town that had a town gas system has a giant mess to clean up because of all of the coal tar Mm -hmm. that was dumped as a part of the the coal gasification process. A lot of tarry residues were made. And in the old days, there was a limited market for the the, uh, coal tar to be made into dyes and other things. And so a lot of it was just basically chucked out in the back 40. And the back 40 is now downtown, this and that city and and town all over the place. And so we've spent millions and millions of dollars to dig up these polyaromatic hydrocarbon deposits that that were left by past generations used town gas and carry them off to other sites where we've reburied them. And, and we call that remediation for some reason or another. But to take the aside uh, all the way along, the compounds that are toxic and nasty in coal tar are largely the same kinds of compounds that are toxic and nasty in the tars that are generated by the pyrolysis of tobacco when you, you know, set it on fire and breathe the smoke in. And so we've spent millions and millions of dollars to dig up sites where people were not being ex- exposed to polyaromatic hydrocarbons. And yet we still legally allow people to pyrolyze tobacco and breathe the same compounds in. And the difference there is of course, voluntary versus involuntary exposure. And we make a big difference between those two things for, for, for reasons that I guess are, are, are clear enough. But where I was going with this is that it was called town gas because it was made in each town. We didn't make it in one giant central facility and then distribute it all over the country. So the argument that, oh, well, the natural gas system, it used to carry town gas, so it must be good for hydrogen is nonsense. Because yeah, the distribution system, what's left of it from a hundred years ago when town gas was used or 60, 70 years ago when town gas was used in, in the UK and places like that, that stuff is okay. You can use hydrogen in it, sort of, if you don't mind a lot of leakage. Um, but <laughs> and other things, but the transmission infrastructure, the long pipes that carry uh, natural gas, say from, for instance, from Alberta to Ontario, where I live, those pipes are utterly unsuitable for hydrogen. In fact, they're already having trouble with 20% hydrogen. 
And 20% hydrogen by volume is only 6% by energy. So let's talk about this because this is the latest EU thing. And, you know, you guys are going to expand, you know, back over to where we have our Canadian hydrogen policy and, you know, down into a look at Biden and, you know, the Biden administration's love of hydrogen, you know, lobbied hard for those things. But in the EU right now, they've got this proposal to make hydrogen and nuclear green. We'll leave the nuclear side part aside. But the hydrogen green is includes a target of 30% of hydrogen um, in the natural gas transmission and distribution system, right? And so 20% is kind of the figure that I'd heard is a bit of a peak for the UK transmission and distribution system. Tell us why that's true, A, and then we'll talk about the energy density and the volume and the energy and stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, as the listeners may uh, wish to look at my article in Clean Technica, uh, where I talk about this in detail and I give the references, but the... 20% is pretty much the limit. In fact, in some places, it's lower than that. And the reason that this 20% is a limit has to do with the metallurgy. So ordinary mild steels, you know, the kind of soft stuff that you would use to make a typical like water pipe, for instance, or the, or the pipe that's used to carry natural gas from the, from the uh, uh, line into and through your house to, to your natural gas consuming fixtures like your stove or, or, or your uh, water heater. That kind of pipe is okay with hydrogen. There's nothing wrong with it. It, won't, it doesn't embrittle it. It doesn't cause any problems for it as long as it's not hot. So by, by hot, I mean, you know, 500 degrees Celsius. So if it's not hot and the pressures are modest, mild steel pipe is fine with hydrogen, but they don't use mild steel pipe for distribution pipelines and haven't for a long time. They yeah, this is actually a, a, this is a place where there's a language problem. In, in electricity, transmission and distribution are well understood different things. In gas, a, a major gas pipeline that goes 5,000 kilometers is distribution, as, as well as the pipes that go from a local utility to a person's home. That's right. Both. And I try to distinguish that by calling the long pipes transmission. Yeah, I, so I try as well. I'm failing miserably yeah. to have that catch on. But for purposes of this podcast, let's talk about natural gas transmission and natural gas distribution. That's right. So the transmission infrastructure, the pipes that carry the gas a long distance, they're the expensive part. They're, they're not expensive in terms of, you know, total dollars, I would, I, I would guess, because you can imagine that having individual pipes running to individual homes, and there are millions and millions of them, small amounts of money times millions equals large amounts of money. But these long transmission lines uh, that run between provinces or between countries, they're, they're expensive, and they're challenging in terms of rights of way and getting people's permission in order to do work on them. Uh, a lot of them run through sensitive areas environmentally and so on. And so they're challenging. And those pipes for natural gas are not mild steel. They're, they're made out of harder steels. And the reason is pretty straightforward. Natural gas is very low corrosivity and it, it doesn't really cause a lot of trouble to the metallurgy of pipes. And so you wanna use the material that is optimal, you know, that it's cheapest cheapest per unit of value, which in this case is being strong enough to over a 50 year lifetime, withstand the contents and the exterior environment and come through that in good, good shape so that you can make money for the people who are buying a bike. And so 
for the longest time, for a very long time, we've used much harder steels for natural gas transmission pipes, the big ones that carry gas at high pressure. And those materials, when they're exposed to hydrogen, they embrittle. And it's, so it's describe a little bit... The, tell, tell us what embrittlement is, because you, sure. you can actually explain it close enough to layman person stuff that I might understand. Yeah, sure. So, so we have to be a little bit careful because there's this phenomenon that's called hydrogen embrittlement. And it's, it's actually quite different than what I'm talking about. So hydrogen embrittlement is a phenomenon that happens as an example. Uh, there's a famous example uh, fairly recently, somewhere, I, somewhere in Northern Ontario, I don't remember exactly where, the town in particular, but there was a large bridge that had recently been reconstructed or serviced or something. And some very large bolts had been used to, uh, as part of the structure to hold this bridge together. And the bolts had been plated and structural bolts are not meant to be plated. They should not be plated because when you do an electrochemical process like zinc plating on a bolt, what happens is at one of the electrodes, you end up making what's called nascent hydrogen, which means hydrogen atoms. And the hydrogen atoms largely recombine very quickly to form hydrogen molecules, H2. Mm-hmm. But the nascent hydrogen, when it's generated in adjacent to a metal, the hydrogen atoms can actually permeate between the grains of the individual mm-hmm. crystals of the, of the uh, metal and cause embrittlement. And with hard steels, these, these alloy steels with uh, high strength that are used in, in things like structural fasteners, it's known that these processes like electroplating can cause this hydrogen, atomic hydrogen diffusion, and they end up making the material brittle. So instead of it stretching before it breaks, which is, you really want that in a fastener, when you start pulling on the part, it will develop its ultimate strength and then it'll snap. Mm-hmm. And so that lack of, duct, that loss of ductility is called brittleness and embrittlement uh, occurs as a result of that exposure. And so that's corrosion- not, So that's one side, but what about right. in pipes? Yeah, so what we're talking about is a different phenomenon. So molecular hydrogen in ordinary steel pipes doesn't cause the sort of embrittlement that I talked about. But in the harder steels, what happens is that the presence of hydrogen, basically it messes with the fatigue life of the material. So when you think about a a part that has to withstand bending, you know, it's being repeatedly bent, flexed one way or another. A part like that, that's easy to think of is if you ever watch an airplane wing as you're sitting in the sitting in the seat, or watching as, the wing. As we think about the Trans Mountain Pipeline with, that was washed out by the atmospheric river flooding a couple of weeks ago and surfaced, you know, and was exposed to a lot of up and downs. There you go. Uh, when, when, you, when, you, when you sit on an airplane, you watch that wing cycle. You, you know, every second for the entire trip, you hope that whoever was designing that airplane did their fatigue calculations correctly, because that's exactly what we're talking about. When something gets bent again and again and again, even small amounts, the material can gradually change its, its structure and it can eventually break, even at very low stresses, just from this cyclic you know, reversals of stress that's happening. And and for gas pipelines, that can include frost heaves, that include 
micro tremors. It can include road traffic running over it, a buried pipeline. It can include mm-hmm. pressure changes in the pipeline. That's the big one. Ah. Pressure changes, pressure changes up and down happen daily. Mm-hmm. And the pipe is rated for a certain number of pressure changes. And beyond that certain number of pressure changes, it's exceeded its fatigue life. And all of a sudden it's now turned kind of turned into a pumpkin. So why is, it a, that, why is the 20% thing? I mean, what, as I understand it, the, the numbers I have is it's 4% in the United States and 20% in the EU, which I assume is the standard chemical composition of the pipes in those two places. But I might just be wrong as well. Yeah. Why, why, so, the, why the 20% limit specifically before it starts to be a problem? Well, honestly, for, for some pipelines, it's 1%. Oh, it depends on the fatigue life that they've assumed and what stress values they've used in designing the pipe. So the what what happens with this flexing is there are changes in the structure of the material happening while the thing is flexing. And if there's hydrogen present, hydrogen can sneak in and fill dislocations that are produced by the cycling. And over time, it, it's kind of like. Um, I'm trying to find an analogy coming up short, but if it's, like, if it's like baking, when you fold air into baking stuff, that's a very good, good example or where, or where you put fresh flour on a surface and you're rolling the dough out, the fresh flour reduces the ability of the, of the dough to adhere to the surface, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it provides kind of a shear plane that when you pull the dough off, it's it doesn't stick as well right and if you have two crystals and they're in contact with one another they can share forces that help to glue them together but if the space between them is full of hydrogen there's a shear plane and 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 so like and again i'm not a metallurgist so i'm explaining this but let's just say you know there might be the the pipes might be a quarter inch thick or a half inch thick you know a couple of centimeters thick there's an awful lot of crystals Oh yeah, uh, and this is and, why and the, you know hydrogen the is, is Michael, the smallest, even... the smallest molecule in the universe. It's tiny; it gets into places. It's like sand at a beach. That's correct. And and what's even worse is that we don't make one big pipe and then put it in place. What we do is we buy a whole bunch of small pipes, short pipes, and then we weld them together on site. And often the pipe itself is made using a process that involves welding. So for instance, the pipe itself may be made out of a strip of material that's rolled in a spiral and then it's spiral welded. And so the places where welding has happened is uh, the, the places that have been heated by the process of welding, the material on either side of the weldment are called the heat affected zone. And the heat affected zone and the weld material and the parent material all of them are affected by hydrogen to different degrees. And it's my understanding, again, it's not an expert metallurgist, but as somebody who knows something about uh, piping because I've been working with, for, working with it for 30 years, designing it and, and using it in chemical plants, including to carry hydrogen. The heat affected zones are quite at risk, especially when the work has been done in the field uh, with these hard materials. And so there, what, what you end up with is the potential for breaks to happen at the welds or in the heat affected zones at the, you know, in these sections, every 40 feet or whatever the length is in a pipeline where the pieces are welded together all the way along. 
every one of those could potentially become a place where cracks form. And once the cracks form, if the hydrogen's there, the cracks will propagate more quickly than they normally would. So once a crack initiates, it can make its way through the wall and now become a leakage point. And of course, now remember hydrogen leaks really easily. It's diffusivity is really high. It's very small. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thank you.